Now for the information of all hands. Welcome to episode four of the 1MC with Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, Jason Vander Hayden. I'm your host, Chief Crystalline Neen. And today we have two very special guests. We are talking to Captain John Driscoll, Chief of Cutter Forces, and Lieutenant Commander Ashley Green, the Float Workforce Manager. Um, go ahead, Master Chief. So, uh, Captain, Commander, thank you for being here. You know, when I got to headquarters a few years ago, uh, I had a lot to learn, but one of the things I learned pretty quickly was that uh, CG7 is one of the most important uh, organizations that we have in the Coast Guard. That's where really all the requirements, kind of all of why we do what we do and how we do it is developed. Uh, it's kind of the starting point for Coast Guard operations and how we're going to meet Coast Guard operations. And then within CG7, uh, there is uh, the directorates, boat forces, cutter forces, aviation forces, uh, deployable, you know, the specialized forces folks, uh, and, and cyber. For now, we, now we have C4IT kind of requirements and then cyber uh, requirements. But 751, the heart of the service really is our, is our cutter forces. And cutters are critical to what we do, all our missions of the Coast Guard, all that we do. So it, it only makes sense that we bring in Captain Driscoll, who is uh, Cutter Forces. He's uh, kind of the head cutterman of the Coast Guard. And, uh, and, and we have Commander Green on to talk about some of the work that she's doing and, and other, uh, other work that's going on inside Cutter Forces. So that's kind of the background of, of, of how the CG7 Cutter Forces is set up. And uh, there's a lot going on. And I can't wait to uh, really uh, talk about all the cool stuff that's going on with Captain Driscoll and Commander Green. So um, with that, you know, I've kind of hit on where Cutter Forces lies. Uh, Captain, can you talk a little bit about what the Office of Cutter Forces is all about? Hey, thanks, Master Chief. Yeah, yeah so uh, the Office of Cutter Forces sits within CG7 Enterprise, and they're primarily looking at uh, cutter capabilities and requirements. But, but really, more than that, they're the advocate for the cutterman or for the cutter fleet. And so it, and it, it kind of crosses from what's maybe written down on the paper what the office does and what they really do, which is anything that comes out, personnel policy, anything that could touch a cutterman, I think the office is looking at that and making sure we're doing it for the right reasons. And, and I think you probably over the years have been contacted by my predecessor, Captain Devonzo, and, and even I, you know, I've, I've already been hitting up uh, Mass Chief Bushy and on with you a couple times on issues that have come up and said, hey, this doesn't look right. Are we doing this for the right reason? And so it's, it, it transcends just what the offices look as designed to do, which is look at capabilities and, and requirements, uh, works on cutter policies, navigation policies, all those kind of things, but also looking at how does, this, how does what's happening in the Coast Guard affect our people that are afloat? Because we're the, if, if we aren't advocating it for who is, right. really? No, you, and you do a fantastic job. There's nobody with more street cred than you, uh, Captain Driscoll for 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 Cutterman, you've 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 commanded cutters and and served on cutters at all levels, and uh, you know just really thankful for your leadership at uh, at Cutter Forces. You know one of the advocacy uh, kind of entities that we stood up uh, the, is the Sea Duty Readiness Council, and, and uh, you know we've got Commander Green on, and you know a lot of really smart people that make up this Sea Duty Readiness Council to make sure that you know. Our cuttermen really are ready to do the mission of the Coast Guard. 
Um, and that's a, you, you know, that's a, a standing organization, not something that just meets occasionally or whatever. That is a standing group of, of really professional folks that do nothing but, as you said, sir, advocate for our people. Can you talk and it's, about and it's really interesting because, you know, if, if I, this is my third tour at headquarters, having the attention that the senior flag officers and you are given to the issue is really important. And having a standing group, this council, CDD Readiness Council, as the, as the champion for making improvements in the Cutter Fleet is, I think, just one of the most fascinating things that I've seen. Uh, and it also reflects the importance that our senior leaders place on the folks that are going to sea. Yes, sir. Um, and, and making sure that the ships, the people, and the mission is all being looked after. Uh, and there's some big things that need to happen to, to make that, to make that uh, you know, a success in the Coast Guard in the future. And this, this group, the Sea Duty Readiness Council, is, is making huge progress in that. Oh, yeah. I, I tell you, I, w- as I sit with a lot of the admirals, uh, commandant, one of the first things they ask is, what's the Sea Duty Readiness Council say? Have we run this through the Sea Duty Readiness Council? You know, and, and I am amazed at the, 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 the really out-of-the-box, innovative, creative thinking that the Sea Duty Readiness Council comes up with in ways to, uh, to really make – Sea duty kind of attractive, and then recognize the the sacrifice and the commitment that our cuttermen make uh, when they go to sea. So, uh, you know, I'd like to like to pitch it over to Commander Green, uh, Commander. If you could talk about a few things that you know maybe the 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 field, the crew would like to hear. Oh, thank you, Master Chief. Um, I'll just explain a little bit more about um, where we came from and what the Sea Duty Readiness Council was chartered to do. Um, because right now we are in the middle of rebuilding and creating the largest fleet recapitalization since World War II. We're growing from um, a little bit over 8,000 billets afloat to more than 10,000 in the next decade. Um, So this is all happening at the same time that we are seeing a decrease in the number of Coast Guard members seeking assignment afloat. And this is not just something that's happening in the Coast Guard, it's also happening in our sister service, the Navy. Um, So it's not just a Coast Guard problem, but we do need to solve it within the Coast Guard, and that's what the CDB Readiness Council was chartered for. So uh, DCO and uh, DCMS chartered the council in uh, January of this year, and we're dedicated to tackling the challenges that are associated with maintaining a float readiness as we're looking to expand our fleet and increase the number of uh, Coast Guard men and women going afloat. Um, so our members, our principal members, include the Assistant Commandants for Human Resources, uh, CG1, Engineering and Logistics, CG4, C4IT, CG6, and it's chaired by the Assistant Commandant for Capability, CG7. Um, and we also have numerous staff and stakeholders that uh, across the fleet that are involved as well. Um, are some of our specific lines of effort that we are working on include uh, managing that afloat billet uh, growth that I just talked to, the track line to 10,000, scheduling and import workload uh, requirements, um, workforce shaping, increasing diversity of float, um, monetary and non-monetary incentives for sea duty, uh, cutterman career development, and enhancing the underway experience. Well, that's awesome. I tell you, there's a lot of lot there uh, that you just talked about. You know, I think we have about seven thousand five hundred cuttermen now, and we're trying to. We know we're gonna 
our, our track line is to 10,000 Cutterman. That is a, that's a, a pretty lofty goal, but we got to do it, right? We have to, we, we need those folks that we have, we're going to have billets for them. So uh, finding ways to, to manage the import workload, I tell you, you said a lot there. That's, uh, as I go around, especially our national security cutters, I want to, you know, I'm going to back up real quick, Commander. When I was a uh, I don't think I understood the term recapitalization until I was a master chief. Uh, that just means like replacing, replacing the current ships that we have with new ships. So when you hear the word recapitalization, that's what that means. Uh, took me a while to learn that. But anyway, so and then, you know, workforce shaping, diversity of float real quick. And, and I may be jumping ahead, but I, and I apologize. But you I just saw an email from you about some interesting work that you're doing with the river tenders to improve our diversity of float. Can you? If I'm jumping ahead, I apologize, but I'm, I'm going to um, I'm going to ask you to talk just briefly about that now. Maybe we'll circle back to that. Oh yes, Master yeah. Chief. Um, so it's really exciting. The Sea Duty Readiness Council has had some early successes uh, in this area, um, especially with our river tender fleet, uh, which are some of the most requested uh, assignments in the Coast Guard. Um, so. CG1 recently signed a policy that will allow women to serve on six of the 65 WLRs, and that opens up about 15 racks across the class. Uh, this policy exception relates to how you access the head um, from what could be designated as female birthing, uh, either by quickly transiting outside the skin of the ship or through uh, male birthing, which is really no different than people do regularly for wake-ups and engineering uh, rounds on other classes of cutters. Um, so from the early AY22 data, um, there are potentially eight spots uh, open on four of the WLRs, and this is of course subject to um, PAL validation as well as the normal assignment factors. But please put in for these billets. Yeah, I tell you, I did three years on Cheyenne, and it was uh, one of the best tours of my career. I just absolutely loved it. Setting buoys is incredibly rewarding work. It's uh, you know you just love it, and uh, I always wanted my daughter to be able to serve on a river tender. Uh, and I'm super excited for all your work to make it available uh, to our women. Uh, that's gonna be really neat. And I, I, you know, having just been on Cheyenne and I know that's one of the cutters you're looking at, I don't think it's gonna be a terribly inconvenient. I think it's actually gonna work pretty good. So uh, I'm excited about that. And then um, you talked about mon not monetary and non-monetary incentives uh, for sea duty. And I think that's important to talk about too. We can't, you know, I wish we had unlimited checkbook that we could just keep writing you know bigger checks to people because i do feel like cuttermen need to you know be able to take care of their families while they're underway and, and anytime we can get a little more money in their pocket that's a good thing uh but it's not always about uh you know money it, there's some there's some other things uh but at the end of the day you know w this is the sea duty readiness council and so there's a little bit of a difference between uh readiness and attractiveness and i i want to be sure that you know when our audience and our crews re recognize that we're really focused on, focusing on readiness. And if we if we improve our readiness, hopefully that also makes them more attractive. Captain, can you talk a little bit about the difference between readiness and attractiveness? Yeah, Master Chief, thanks. You know, um, as you were talking about it, I, I kind of, you know, you, you could talk about monetary incentives, but but at the end of the day, what keeps people going back to sea is it's, it's gotta be rewarding, you know? Yes, sir. Yes, and if, sir. It's, if it's monotonous or if it's something that is just you know, detestable conditions or bad command climate that could happen anywhere, you're not going to want to go back to sea. But the thing that makes it different and makes it attractive is the variety of the things you get to do and the places you get to see. That's right. Uh, 22, when, 22 years ago, I was ops on Midget. 
And 22 years ago today, I got underway on June 18th and sailed to the Persian Gulf on Midget with the USS Constellation Battle Group as the operations officer. And on that trip, we went to Hawaii, we went to Hong Kong, we had a port call in Hong Kong, uh, we went to Korea, uh, we went to, to Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Thailand, Malaysia. I have never, that, that has been in the forefront of my mind the, my whole career. And the things I learned about going to sea and about, you know, having that experience was fantastic. And I, I've always wanted to keep doing that. You know, it's fun going overseas and seeing things. Um, you know, I've, I've certainly done my share of drug ops and, and time in the, in the Bering Sea, but you know, the, the, the variety of things that you get to do afloat are, are just fantastic. One of the other things, it's professionally rewarding too. So before I was on Midget, I was, uh, I was an OIC of Elite. And back in the day, uh, before we had MEs, we had uh, different ratings as on leadettes. And so we had bosun mates and MKs and quartermasters and uh, you know, a couple other ratings here and there and there. But I, I was with, uh, with my team and we were down on a, on a, in the Caribbean and MK3 was studying for a service wide. And he was just distraught because he was trying to get ready to, you know, to take his service wide to advance to MK2 but he didn't have any Coast Guard equipment to look at. Right. He, even though he was on a ship and he was working with the Navy on some of the diesel engines on the PC, it, it wasn't quite the same. He didn't have any gas turbines on the ship that we were on. And so he, he, he was out of rate. Y yet when I was, you know, in the last few tours I've had, when I've been afloat on cutters, uh, our, our folks are in rate. And it is the best chance to advance that they could have in their career is being on a ship. And so it's professionally rewarding. And I, and I think that's what's attractive about it. You know, you, you get to see things, you get to go do, it's, there's a variety involved, but you're in your rating and you're doing the things that make a difference in your advancement. You get C, C, you know, points for seat time, you get you know, those kind of things, but you're really in your rating. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and the earlier you do it, the better. I, I, I totally agree. I, it's fast. It's just, it's, I love hearing those memories 20 years ago are still that fresh in your mind. So I could tell go, going to sea, very rewarding. I totally agree with you. I could recall patrols doing the same thing. It's just, it's, it's funny. To, I wish you could see Captain Driscoll. He's just <laughs> like on fire, you know, talking about, you know, t something that happened 20 years ago. Well, That's was, what going to sea does I for you. I remember because it was June 18th to December 18th. And we came back in December 18th of 1999. And I know you were in the Coast Guard then. Yes, sir. And the entire Coast Guard was on alert for the change from 1999 to 2000, the Y2K change. Right. And, and no one was allowed leave on any of the cutters during that, that change because they thought the cutters were going to blow up or something. <laughs> Except Coast Guard Cutter Midget, we were on mandatory stand down from PAC area. And yeah. we, were we were the only ship in PAC area that was not only allowed leave, we were required not to be underway wow. and not to be ready. And it was fantastic. Because we had done our time at sea, we mm -hmm. came back and we got rewarded for the, the performance of crew dead. And we, got, we were given the time down to, to be with our families. And I think that's important, that while you're underway, you're able to, to execute mission, to go see things, to have that variety. But when you're in port, we need to focus on, on the families. Sure. And that's that thing that I think you brought up earlier about the import workload. Right. And, and I lived it on, on Bertoff in my last afloat tour at, when I was CO, and, and it's a real thing. Yeah. It, it's a big, big deal. I, I, I know, and, and, and so as we talk about, Commander Green, as we talk about the difference between readiness and attractiveness, can you share a little bit about 
how that what the the problem set is between the difference of uh, readiness and attractiveness? Yes, Master Chief. Um, so when we're trying to describe the problem set, the term attractiveness is really just too narrow in scope. And it really doesn't address the support issues and the career perceptions, which are also like really central to our afloat retention challenges. Um, we, Cutter Forces did an EPM desirability study um, last year and in that study we found that our larger cutters were among the least requested assignments in the Coast Guard. And this, this study was done for all billets, not just the float billets. So this was our larger cutters um, being the least requested. But yet, like Captain said, there are things um, about these cutters that are still extremely attractive to people. The CPAY, the mission set, the worldwide port calls, um, the immersive experience in your qualifications and your rate-specific work. That's another reason why attractiveness is really the wrong descriptor for what we are trying to um, solve here. Um, because on the other hand, like um, some of our smaller cutters, especially ones that we find below, we found in the study are some of the most um, requested assignments in the Coast Guard. So if we just look through the lens of attractiveness, we're missing a lot. There's a lot more going on here, work-life balance. When, when I was putting in my, my uh my e-resumes or dream sheets or whatever they are, you know, were back in the day. The, the, one, the one billet that my wife didn't like a lot was the patrol boat because she never knew if I was going to be here or gone. Right. And I was constantly coming into port, leaving, coming into port, leaving. I was, I was uh, on Nantucket, Matagorda, and Key West, and it was the one that was the most disruptive to our family life. Uh, but she really liked when I was on the larger cutters because it was predictable and she could get the kids into a routine, sure. into a rhythm, and it actually was easier for her when I was on the larger ship. It's counterintuitive, but at, you know, as I went through my career, I would ask people about it, and I, they had the same thing. Do you have similar? I, absolutely. Uh, you know, when you can plan out family vacations and you can plan out you know, when you're going to be in, when you're not going to be in, it actually makes it a little bit easier than you know, having your schedule built kind of month to month and you're in, in, in being in, in Bravo status and not knowing whether you're going to be in B6 or B12, you know, whatever yeah. that, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Commander, sorry. Sorry. Yes. The two old guys keep yeah. interrupting yeah. you. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's all right. I think that's one of the great things about the Cutter fleet is that there really is something for everyone. I'm a black hole uh, cutterman by trade, so that is, uh, like you were discussing, a different stress when you're out more often but not out as as for long as you are when you're on a, a larger cutter where you're out for longer but not as many times <clears throat> excuse me as many times throughout the year um, so there really is something for every family and every sailor um, within the cutter fleet um, but some of the other things um, getting back to some of the other things that are part of informing this whole um, readiness versus attractiveness issue um, is that we're looking, you know, looking at import uh, versus underway balance, work-life balance, proper compensation, uh, risk versus reward, um, societal internet access expectations, um, and equal opportunities on our smaller cutters. So, like, um, the term readiness also speaks to the Commandant's guiding principles and emphasizes the fact that in the end, these challenges will lead to an overall reduction in readiness if we don't solve this problem. And that's what we are trying to do. Yeah, and you're doing a magnificent job. I, I got to tell you, the ideas, the suggestions, 
everything coming out of, of your work, Commander, is a home run. And uh, uh, although some of them may be difficult to implement or maybe take some time, they're all really focused on cutter readiness in, in mind, and, and I'm grateful for that. Just keep up the great work. I, I'll share a story with you. I So I was on a, a – Loran Station. Normally, a cook you'd go to you'd go right to sea uh, after graduating uh, from A school, uh, but I went to a Loran Station instead. And so when I came back from Loran Station, I went to a, to an air station. So my first time going to sea was actually on a river tender as an E five river tender. Not so much stress. I mean, busy work, very hard, but not so much stress. It's a small crew, all enlisted. It w- wasn't a ter- wasn't a big, you know, difficult lift for me going from an air station to, to the river tender. Then my first time going to sea was uh, as an E6 on a 210, and I was a nervous wreck. I was a nerv- I, didn't, I was like, oh, there's an expectation that I'm going to have a certain skill set, that I'm going to know how to do my job when I walk on the ship. And so it wasn't attractive to me, not because I didn't want to get underway, but because I was nervous. I, you know, I would tell all those folks out there, if, if you're going to sea for the first time as an E6, you, you're, you're, you're nervous about it, uh, it's okay. Uh, you know, I was there, other people do it too. And once I got on the ship and I kind of figured out, this is cool, I kind of like this. This is, uh, you know, this is kind of neat. I didn't like being away from my family, but I did like going to sea and I liked what we did. I liked the teamwork, the camaraderie. And so, uh, and we, I actually lived in a, in a nine man first class berthing that was attached to a 25 man deck berthing that shared a head and it was a, you know, it was uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't all that. Uh, you, you know, you had to time when you went to the head and took a shower and all that kind of stuff. But the new cutters we've got are amazing. They are they're they're built for comfort. Burden areas were thought out well. A lot of the lot of the habitability we call that habitability the the, the how easy it is to live on. Have, have really we've grown a lot in that. So, Captain, can you can you talk to us a little bit about the different ships we've got coming and uh, what our cuttermen can look forward to? Sure. Let me just talk about your old ship, though, because <laughs> you were talking about Cheyenne and Burden yeah. areas, and I just spent three days underway on Cheyenne That's last right, month. you did. That's right. And I, I think I lived in the same Burden area that you were talking about. I signed the rack. Maybe you saw that. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, y- they talked about you being there, and they were very grateful for your time to come out there. Hey, look, it was probably one of the most fun things I've done in the Coast Guard because it was different. You know, and that, that, it gets to that variety of, of doing different things. And uh, I've always enjoyed going in and out of ports. Um, I took, uh, when I was CEO of Thetis, we went up to New Orleans twice, and the crew was really nervous about going up. You know, boy, that's eight hours at special sea detail. Yeah, but if you do it as a port and starboard thing, it's really only, you know, you, you, split the, you split the pain a little bit, and you get up there, but you get to see stuff the whole time you're going up the river. Oh, yeah. And it's fun. And then when you get it to New Orleans, it's really fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, and we tied up downtown in, uh, right in the French Quarter. And so we were, uh, we were about two-minute walk to Café du Monde, Nice. in the quarter and about a 10 minute walk to uh to uh the street where they have all the jazz club um bourbon street oh uh, there's bourbon street and no. then it's uh the one that's perpendicular to it down i only know bourbon street <laughs> <laughs> i know what you were doing <laughs> but uh but you know those those things are great but on the new ships you know we are in the middle of as as you mentioned earlier recapitalizing replacing our fleet and it's not a one-to-one replacement because we're we're, we're taking old systems out that were designed 50, 60, 70 years ago and replacing them with things that are much more capable now. And I think the first and the, the biggest one that came, came out of this was the national security cutters. So the 378s were 
ahead of their time when they were designed in the 60s, but then by the time the last one was decommissioned this year, they, they had seen their, their better days and they were getting old. The national security cutters came on and, and, and had so much more capability that they added to it. As the CEO of Bertoff, we participated in the Rim of the Pacific exercise, uh, I think it's three years ago now, which is the world's largest naval exercise. And Bertoff was, was there and I had two of the US Navy COs come on and I gave them a tour. And we went into the Combat Information Center on Bertoff and I showed them our equipment it was more advanced than what they had. Wow. And, and they were on a Navy cruiser and a Navy destroyer. And, and I'll tell you, just watching their faces, it's like, you guys have this? Yeah, we've, we've got the best stuff. And so what we're able to do now with these ships is, is equip our crews for mission success, but with the latest in technology. So uh, if you're an OS or, or, or a, a junior officer and you've heard of Sea Commander and you've heard of Sea Watch, and they're, they're, you know, they run the navigation system. But Sea Commander is so much more. Uh, in the Navy, they call that Aegis. And it's actually an Aegis baseline nine derivative system. And this is what our OSs are working underway. And it is phenomenal. And so as that technology is getting incorporated into our new ships, the national security cutters coming out, uh, the offshore patrol cutters will have a, a, a slight variation of that same system on board called Athena. That, that's coming out, and they're coming soon. The first couple of uh, OPCs are under construction. I think the first one is supposed to be delivered, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's next year. Uh, and, and so we're right on track to have these things happen. The 270s uh, have been around a while. Uh, I was XO uh, of Mohawk, which was the newest of the 270s, <laughs> and when I got on board, she was old. Um, maybe I'm dating myself, but... But they, they need some help, too. So there's a plan to put six of the 270s through a service life extension program, and that's going to start soon. And I think Coast Guard Yard's going to be doing that, and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll get those ships, uh, improve the systems on board so it's easier on the crews to maintain while those ships are still in service. We've got uh, on the fast response cutters, we've already delivered 43 fast response cutters. We used to have 49 110s. And we took eight of them and we did a science project <laughs> called the 123-foot patrol boat. Uh, didn't work so well. I, I know I have uh, first-hand scars. I was the CEO of the first one. Um, but, but we ended up with 41 110s. And we already have 43 fast response cutters commissioned. And we're, we're funded up to 64 now, including replacing the six that are in Bahrain with fast response cutters. And for the crews that have sailed on these things, these are just absolutely game changers in, in capability. They're only a little bit longer than the 110, but they are night and day different from what, they, what the 110 capability was. And so much more technology built into the ship from the start. Uh, th these are just unbelievable assets. And then I think the other ones that are coming out that are, uh, are a polar security cutter, we have a contract for the first one, uh, and, and, then, and then down the line, an Arctic security cutter, uh, those are those are in the works, as well as the recapitalization and replacement of our inland river tenders with the Waterways Commerce Cutter or WCC that you, some people may have heard about, and that's re replacing those those river tenders like Cheyenne and 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 the other ones that are, are really old now uh, with with new construction to to be able to meet the needs of of the river community. Oh there. yeah, yeah. The, I, I I get a lot of questions about the Waterways Commerce Cutter. There's a lot of excitement around that. Let, let me just add one thing, yeah. though. I, I, I'm just finishing my tour, two years at the Pentagon at the Office of Secretary of Defense, and, and I think there hasn't been a week go by 
since I've been there where somebody hasn't asked me about our cutter fleet. And it's in the news. I mean, I had come off of Bertoff and we had done a West Pacific, Western Pacific deployment. Uh, and we were, you know, Bertoff was still in the news when I got there. Stratton was out there afterwards. Hamilton was just in the Black Sea. The, our, our ships are doing amazing things around the world and the demand for them has never been higher. Yeah. So the strategic importance of what our cutter fleet brings to the nation is is the highest it's ever been. I, I tell you, the Commandant says that all the time, that you know, in terms of cooperation to competition, there's nothing better than the U.S. Coast Guard. Now, you get to combat, maybe the Navy's got us a little bit in combat. I'm just kidding. Navy's got us a lot in combat, but for, for everything in between, we're it. And that everything in between is today. It is. It's absolutely today. And hopefully where we are, we don't ever want to really be in combat if oh, we no. don't have to be. No. So, hey, I, I was uh, had the chance to go down and see the OPC. And for everybody listening, I'll tell you, the loading stores will be a thing of the past. Uh, they, so they have this big hatch on the deck of the OPC, and there's going to be a crane. And so you'll be able to load all the groceries onto a pallet and then lift them up on the crane Bring, swing the crane over and drop the groceries right down into the reefer flats and where where dry stores is. I mean, it's it's. Where, where's the fun of that? Well, uh, yeah, but I mean, we can get we can get everybody liberty I mean, a lot faster. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't peel off that thing of ice cream. I know. Yeah, you yeah. Uh, that, ha- that never happened. They'll just have to come to, to the reefer flats to get that. But but it, you know the, the technology. You know a lot of the a lot of the cool stuff that that we're incorporating into our ships really is going to improve the quality of life. Uh, for our crews and you know some of the you know stuff that we used to do Coast Guard memes about we will be a thing of the past we'll have to come up with something new so uh, but but because we won't be loading st- we won't be ha- you know hand yeah. over hand over hand loading stores anymore it'll be a lot easier yeah, and then the crews can focus on get you know if you have a port call where you're doing a heavy outload right uh, the crews can focus on more just getting the ship ready for getting underway again instead of just having to load stores absolutely Liberty happens faster you yep. spend less time you know it, these, these are huge improvements yeah huge these improvements. are all great great things I'm, I'm as a cook I'm super excited Excited about the uh, loading stores thing. Uh, so, so <laughs> some of the things that we need to take with the CDD Readiness Council and message properly across the fleet and across like every accession source, so that people know that these exciting things are happening and that we are continually stressing the fact that the Cutter fleet is the heart of the service um, and how much, like Captain was saying, that it's affecting our you know, national um, uh, presence yes. as well. Yes, Commander, thank you. And, and uh, absolutely, hi, uh, we'll be working with you guys to, to communicate all the great things uh, through the CDD Readiness Council that are the, 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 the technology, the kind of the quality of life, the habitability improvements of these new cutters. Uh, uh, thank you for your leadership on that, Commander. One of the things the Commandant talks a lot about is, you know, kind of geographic stability. How do we how do we create opportunities for folks to kind of plant some roots in a community, maybe do a tour of float and come back and do a, a tour of shore maintaining that, you know, helping to maintain that cutter and then maybe go back a float. And, and one of the things that uh, we've been doing is to try to identify home ports where we can put a handful of cutters or maybe more than a handful of cutters in one place. Um, and we, we've, you know, CG7 and 751 Cutter Forces has a lot to do with how we pick our cutter home ports uh, and, and geographic stability being one of the considerations. Captain, can you talk a little bit about how home port or cho- home ports are chosen for cutters? Sure, Master Chief. There's a whole 
a whole list of factors that go into into how we pick home ports. Um, I guess probably probably the biggest one is where is it, where is there peer space? Where can we create peer space? Yes, sir. And then how much is it going to cost? But but when you have the list of places you could go, then it gets racked and stacked against where can we support the ships? And then equally important is what's the best place for our families? Yes. And 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 I'll tell you, you know, I, I I'm a cutterman, you're a cutterman. It, we don't want to go places that our families aren't going to like because when we go to sea, they're at home. And we want to be places where there's a good environment when you're off the ship, on, you know, out on liberty, in between your, your, your patrols. And you want that to be a good experience. And you don't want the ship to be tied up at a place that's you know, getting banged around where the ship gets damaged. You don't want to tie up at a place where it's a bad neighborhood. You don't want to tie up at some place you can't get parts because it just makes everything harder. Yep. And we want to put ships at locations that are easy to maintain, where the crew has the best community to be involved in, and where we can, like you said, when we can, we can consolidate different things together. Yeah. Commander, Sea Duty Readiness Council, do you guys look a little bit about uh, uh, where we're putting these new ships? Uh, Yes, Master Chief. We work with the... um with the division in uh, 751 that is uh, dedicated to uh, home porting concerns. And then um, if there is anything that comes up to me directly, I would work with them to, um, you know, address those. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a team effort really uh, figuring out these home ports. I know CG one is involved, you know, on the, you know, on the personnel side and then engineer, the engineers are involved. So it's a, is it a, I've seen this. It's like a big matrix home port analysis tool matrix thing that we use. And I just want everybody listening to know that we put a lot of thought behind, you know, these home ports and and the whole. And as you said, Captain, peer space is critical. You know, when you're when you're bringing a 419 foot ship or or in the case of the Arctic, uh, the polar security cutter, almost 500 feet, uh, you know, peer space is 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 important. One of the smaller ships that we have that's a little easier to kind of put in, in different places is our 87-foot patrol boats. As we brought f- fast response cutters in, you know, again, we kind of make peer space, among other things, but we've we've had to, um, you know, kind of update our, our program for 87-foot patrol boats. And, and I know that's near and dear to many of our um, bosun mates' hearts because that's their uh, multi-mission command afloat opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about the future of the 87-footers? Sure. So at, at the at the beginning of this fiscal year, we had 73 87-foot patrol boats. And of those, uh, four are employed by the Maritime Force Protection Units. Those are in Kings Bay, Georgia, and up in uh, Bangor, Washington. And uh, and so as we're looking at, at different budget things, uh, they identified some areas where we could get some cost savings. And I think it gets into... Uh, we got FRCs coming on that have more capability, but mm-hmm. you can't just look at the cutters. You got to look at the small boats too. So with the RBMs coming online and and the 47-foot motor lifeboats, they're they're much more capable than the the boats that they replaced. So the 47s have been around a long time, but they were a game changer from the old 44-foot motor lifeboats. And then you know the the RBM compared to the 41 is not even in the same ballpark. Right. And so they're much more capable as well. So. The Coast Guard identified uh, that we could probably uh, decommission several of the of the 87s, and let me see. I think we we've, we've got, we're getting rid of uh, 
what is it, 13? Yes, sir. 87 this, this, in the next couple of years. And I know there's a lot of angst about that because there's a loss of opportunity, for, especially on the BOSA mate side, for command. Uh, but let me, let, let me just dispel this. So of the 13, eight, eight of them that are going to be decommissioned are Lieutenant JGCOs. So we went heavy on the, the JG side. Uh, and we're going to replace those opportunities with some other things for the officers. And one of them is going to be, uh, we're, we're just going to decommission the hull that doesn't even have a crew right now. Uh, it's, so they're going through the RDAP process, the Recurring Depot Availability Program. And as 187 goes in, the crew picks up a different one coming out. They're just going to decommission one that's in there. So it, it, it's just going to go away. It doesn't have a crew. And, and so that means that four of the BOSA mate ships will, will get decommissioned. And we, we put the heavy emphasis on the, on the, on the officer side there but by creating other opportunities for officers as well. Yeah, I know, I know Cutter Forces doesn't want to take away any more cutters. There's, this isn't a want-to-do thing. This is kind of a need-to-do uh, capacity and, and budget, uh, budget requirements and things like that. But uh, I, I, as I talked to the Commandant, the Commandant says, you know, I'm an operator, and the last thing I want to do is take away any operational capability. So this isn't a, this isn't a move. We will have 87s, uh, from my understanding, and – I just want to make everybody make sure everybody knows that this this isn't a we're, we're not like every year going to get rid of more and more 87s. There may be some capacity where the FRCs just are you know overtake the capacity the, the capability of the 87, but we will have 87s. Commander, you have thoughts on on any of this? Right. I'll just emphasize that there are no other 87 uh, DCOMs planned after the ones in FY21 and 22, and we are still going to have. 30 ships that have um, uh, Master Chief um, or Senior Chief Bosun's Mate um, OANC opportunities. Fantastic. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, those opportunities are still there. Um, the other thing is, you know, while we're decommissioning some 87s, we're also from the officer side, we're bringing more FRCs online, right. and so the, the, we're going to have more FRCs at 64 than we ever had 110s. So we're going to have a net increase. And we're trying to do a little bit of right sizing here. Sure. And and speaking of the FRCs and, and command, I know we, we there's an idea to do some with warrant officers, and we had talked about some enlisted commands, but there's some. Uh, there, there's a couple issues that yeah. go into that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and one of them is that our FRCs are are baked into a lot of the DoD uh, contingency plans, as our our major cutters are, as well. And so there, there's a requirement there, you know, for warships to have a commissioned officer as the uh, as the sure. as the commanding officer, and and it and it simply gets into in the numbers there, and so uh, that's why we've got the officers on the FRCs, and you know, and also warrant officers, and and even some of the FRCs now have lieutenant commanders on as a CO uh, in some of our strategic ports to provide a little bit, uh, you know, a senior person in each one of those ports where the uh, you know. FRC concentration areas. Sure. So we're doing different things to ensure we have the right leadership levels there, um, but we're trying not to take any uh, any command opportunities away from the BOSA mate on the on the 87 side or just very few. On the on the uh, FRC side, we've we're up we've up the where the chief warrant officers are are in command, which does create some opportunities for additional BOSA mate billets there. Yes, they can be XPOs and. You know, the patrol boats are a way that we grow uh, future, lar you know, MECCOs and then HEC, you know, National Security Cutter CEOs. So, uh, you know, it, it, is a, it is a growth opportunity for these junior officers to get a float command so that they stay and, and can be great 
you know, large cutter CEOs uh, uh, one day. And then on the conversely on the Aton side, where we have our 175s and our and our 225s and 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 the Mackinac, they they tend to grow our Aton buoy tending and ice breaking. The 140s also 140s a, a tremendous platform to grow uh, future ice breaking CEOs and. You know, with uh, the the additional the polar security cutters coming, hopefully Arctic security cutters. And I'll just tell you, when I was on the hill with the with the commandant on Tuesday, and we were visited six different congressional members, four of the six asked us, "How many icebreakers do you think the Coast Guard needs?" And the, the commandant was very clear about that. Can, that. can I can I pause on the icebreaker thing sure. for a second? Because the icebreakers are going to change a little bit how we, how we've looked at cutters in the in the past. So we've had Red Hall and and community and, and, and a lot of the folks who are who are on 225s or 140s in the black hole world will go to icebreakers and, and work their way up that way but the polar security cutter and the arctic security cutter are going to change that they're going to break that mold a little bit where we have an opportunity to I mean, we're going to have what's going to look like a cic on some of these where we're going to have opportunities for ratings that didn't necessarily make it onto uh onto the old red hulls they're going to be able to go to the Arctic and Antarctic. Um, I've never been able to do that in my career just because I've done mostly Whitehall stuff. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and that opportunity is just oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, there's some ISs that are really looking forward to serving on uh, Red Hole Cutters. That's gonna be really neat. And, and Commander, as a, as a black hole sailor yourself, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know getting, crew, getting the, the expertise uh, ready for these pol polar and Arctic security cutters? Right. There's really uh, no substitution for um, actually having driven in ice uh, to be able to mentor others to do the same. And that's both with um, both driving in it and uh, the engineering challenges that are associated with it. So we do need to start uh, deepening that talent pool. And that's one of the things that we are working on um, with the CUD Readiness Council in increasing diversity of float with, you know, because like we were talking about before, it starts with our smaller cutters, the river tenders, um, the construction tenders, the 140s, the 175s. Um, we do have um, women assigned to all of our 175s uh, currently, um, but increasing those opportunities for women on the smaller ships like we uh, talked about before with the 65 WLRs, we also have um, another opportunity uh, coming on the um, WYTLs in sector New York. They are really leaning forward on this initiative and it's wonderful and exciting to um, have their support. They worked with SFLC to um, get an approved uh, change to one of their berths that previously was just had a sofa bed and a pipe rack in it. Um, so they're going to put the same two high rack assembly that's on the FRCs into that uh, birthing area to make it something that they could use to assign women there as well and get those opportunities for more people to start building that expertise as we start trying to outfit um, the PSCs and the ASCs in future years. So that is, the SDRC actually just funded that initiative just this week. So we should see in the coming months, those changes being made on those three cutters from sector New York. Can I add in here that the work that they're doing is, it, it has more of an impact on our workforce than just what we would consider our traditional cuttermen. Because when you go to sea, especially on our larger ships, I mean, it, it, it's a whole community of people that gets underway with you. You got your ship, on a, especially on a Wenzel, you get underway with your ship's company, you get underway with your IS team, 
So now we've got you know more opportunities for ISs. You, you might get underway with a, a helicopter. So you know, and, and back in the day, especially if it was a 210, there were male-female uh, requirements where sometimes the, the women pilots weren't able to go or, or air crew. These are, these are things now that aren't an issue. We, there's opportunity for folks to get underway. And then on the Wimsel, uh, we've had an MSRT detachments on, on Wimsels as well. Again, it opens up opportunities for much more than what we would consider a traditional cutter fleet. And the work that the Sea Duty Readiness Council is doing is having an impact on that in, across the Coast Guard. Oh, yeah. Uh, Commander, yes, absolutely. We also have, um, in the next uh, year or two, I will keep everybody posted, but we're also um, going to be outfitting, uh, starting with at least three 140s. We got permission from DCO uh, to do that uh, over the next several years to outfit them with a smaller birthing uh, area instead of eight and eight, it'll be five and 11. Uh, so that will be more conducive to assigning women to those platforms as well. And in future years, we'll be looking to do that with um, 140s that are, you know, where, where there's two in one port to improve co-location uh, members, co-location opportunities for members as well being assigned there. Yeah, that's awesome. I I know the rate, a couple of rating force master chiefs, EMMK and DC, I think, maybe others, uh, increased the sea duty requirement for E7 or E8. I, I, I know they increased the, the, the in, in rating time uh, uh, for advancement. And so opening up these racks and getting more opportunity is going to be critical as, as our women uh, try to advance, make chief, senior chief. Uh, they need those opportunities to get underway. So I'm, I'm super grateful for your, your work on that. I know uh, one of the one of the challenges, and I'll I'll take this on myself. I'm not asking 751 for help, but uh, you know, if you if you if you're a multi-mission patrol boat cutter guy or gal, getting over into the river tender side, getting over to Aton side has been tricky, especially on the on the Bosomate side. So you know, opening up those 225, you know, getting more opportunities allows people maybe to to go back and forth between the multi-mission and the the buoy tenders. So. Wonderful work on uh, uh, updating our birthing areas to get more more women afloat opportunities. So, uh, y you know, when we have uh, these new cutters, they require, you know, and the, and the crews are a little bit smaller, uh, we do a lot more maintenance at, at the pier than we do underway. And the other part of that, too, is, is they're very busy while they're underway. So you some of the PMS, some of the, the preventive maintenance that you might have done while you're underway, you just don't have the time or capability to do anymore while you're underway. You have to kind of do it when you get back into port. And one of the one of the things that I hear probably more than anything else is, you know, it feels like we're going through a mini dockside every time we, or maybe even a full dockside every time we pull in. Is there anything that we can do to help our crew, our cutter crews be able to have a little bit more uh, work-life balance while they're in port? So first of all, this isn't just a theoretical thing. I can tell you from firsthand experience that this is absolutely true. Uh -huh. And it's not like a mini dockside. It is a full-blown <laughs> dockside, especially on our national security cutters. Right. It is a scheduled full dockside every time you pull in. So if we pull in at 1400 on the high tide in Alameda, the next morning at 8 o'clock was the arrival conference for the dockside. The next morning, you didn't get to sleep in. I mean, that, and that's what we're doing. And then you work, the crews work until the day before you sail, if not the morning of with contractors, 
it was a relief to get underway so that you could get rest. Yeah. We can't keep doing that to our crews. Right. And, and so I think there's some initiatives in, in, in place now to, to work on that, to try to get those things knocked down, but that's real. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right about having a smaller crew and a bigger workload. Uh, when I, I, I mentioned 22 years ago, I was ops on midget. We had a, our personnel allowance list, the PAL on, the, on a 378 back then was 167 people. Uh, PAL on a, a national security cutter is 126, right. and it's a bigger ship by a lot. And that's going to be true with, you know, OPCs when they come, on, come online as well. And so we, we have these ships. I mean, it was, a, it was the same with the 180s to the 225s on the buoy tenders. We have, we have bigger ships and smaller crews, and we have to get that import maintenance right so it doesn't get taken out on the crew. Um, now, the crews have things they have to do. We have to make sure our ships are maintained and that they aren't falling apart. Some of that's incumbent on the crew, but we've got to give them the tools in the support and the contracting and those kinds of things so that they can do their job and that when they're underway, it works. And they're not having to, to scramble around, try to fix things that they just didn't get around to while right. they were in port because they didn't have time. Right. There's, there's a lot that has to go into that. Yeah, Commander, can you talk about a couple of things that uh, – that are that we can look forward to some some of the initiatives that uh, that you guys are working on. Of course, Master Chief, yeah. we did get some really um, heartening information from the FY22 uh, presidential budget. The Commandant set, sent up. Um, so, and granted, these monetary solutions, nobody thinks that these are the end-all, be-all solutions for fixing this. You know, the import workload balance pro uh, problem because this is very complex and it does have high-level support across multiple directorates, but some of the things that we do have so far are that we got $4.4 million for restoring the Wimsel uh, quality assurance billets that had been taken off in um, years past, and then we also um, got 32 billets for increasing the uh, maintenance billet availability and weapons augmentation teams uh, for our major cutters. So that is one thing in the um, very large beast that tackling this problem is. Um, some other things that happened in, the, in that budget is uh, 225 crew right sizing, plusing up all of the crews to 48 people on the POW, uh, which is very important on um, minimally or optimally manned cutters. And then one of the other things that I thought was really, really encouraging is the um, surface fleet depot maintenance backlog has been taken up, got almost $54 million to offset those uh, recurring maintenance costs that had been deferred because there wasn't enough money. So now we are going to get that. I was just talking to a um, Warren Boson uh, CEO of 175 a couple weeks ago about how much of a frustration uh, in the fleet this is when depot level maintenance is deferred and cutmen feel like they are being asked to do you know, dangerous missions and nearshore navigation uh, with cutters that aren't being maintained properly. Um, so it's really good, just really encouraging that we are seeing that come through because that needs to keep happening every year. I, I tell you, 32 billets. So 32 more billets to help maintain the the, Matt, the cruise through Matts and Watts, that is a home run, and I want to congratulate you, Commander, because you I know you put your heart and soul into to try to get these things in but on the budget, so thank you. Uh, you know, all of this is really in an effort to improve our, our cutter sustainability, you know, the sustainability, 
give the crews a little bit more resilience. Maybe you know if you're maybe you don't have to work you know ten hours a day. You can cut cut you back a little bit. Maybe take some leave some some leave while while cutters are in port. But to 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 give you some resilience to build that back and to to help with the the the, the stamina factor and the fatigue factor. So. You know, really grateful for all the efforts from 751 and the Sea Duty Readiness Council as they try to support our cutter crews and, and really ensure that we have a ready cutter fleet. Uh, Captain, you want to um, bring us home with uh, any parting thoughts or anything else that we can uh, look forward to? Sure, Master Chief. You know, one of the hardest things you can do, you talked about, you know, somebody going to sea and what that feels like, that trepidation of, of going to sea. and. The, the two hardest days you have on the ship are the day you report a, a, and the day you leave. Yeah. And when I counsel somebody in the cabin, you know, before they're, they're, they're doing their exit interview with me as a CO, I, I talk to them and say, hey, you know, one of the hardest things you have on a ship is the day you leave. Because you're going from a community of, you know, filling the size of the ship it is, but, you know, on a, my last ship, so National Security Cutter, 126 people in the regular crew, if, if you had something going on at home that wasn't working right and you happened to come in at 2 o'clock in the morning and said hi to the, the GPOW and went to the mess deck, and, mess deck and had a bowl of cereal, nobody even asked you to second-guess you or anything. If you wanted to talk to somebody for three hours in the middle of the night on the ship, somebody would talk to you. You have just this tremendous network of people that care about you, that care about each other, and it's a community that just doesn't exist. I mean, it exists in other places, but it, it, the Cutter Fleet is the, is the best place yep. that I've ever seen it. Yep. And one of the hardest things you can do is leave a cutter. And look, I, I, I'm, I was happy to, you know, every time I got transferred off the ship, I was happy. But it was also with a, a kind of a, a feeling that it was almost a letdown. And I can, I'll give you an example. I, when I was ops on Midget, uh, I, I transferred from Midget to the PAC Area D11 Command Center as a SAR controller back in 2000. And about three or four months into it, I, I was standing watch and it was evening and I, I just thought to myself, what's going on here? It just doesn't seem fun. I love the SAR work, I love doing all that, but miss the people. Right. And having the wardroom as an officer or having the chief's mess or the first class mess or the mess deck or whatever that is, that, that camaraderie that you have as shipmates just isn't duplicated anywhere else. And what we have to do is to look out now, we, you're talking about 10,000 people afloat in the future. It's really, we have to watch out for those people when they come off the ship too, because we need to make sure they're going to places where they can get that rest, they can get their batteries recharged, they can do those things and their families are taken care of. Uh, Master Chief knows, I've, I've, I've hit him up a few times over the last couple years when you know, DOD will come out with a new family program and we're not really represented well in the Coast Guard in there. And I'm constantly pinging yep. him on it. Yep. And one of the things I pinged Master Chief Bushy on a couple weeks ago, maybe it was a couple months ago now, was this, uh, you know, the enlisted person of the year message came out and not a single person on the cutter on there. What, what's going on there? <laughs> well, I, I, you know. I, I'll throw uh, it down. Uh, okay. Come yeah, on, Master Chief. Uh, and so, so. The, the way the process works is the cutters go through the district, their, their, their district geography. And, uh, you know, that's part of the challenge of being on a, on a large cutter on a cutter is you're busy. And, uh, you know, sometimes on a cutter, you're, you're so busy, you, you, it's hard to recognize people properly, you know, 
until they are ready to leave the ship. And then we give them a, a great award when they leave the ship. And, you know, I, don't, I, I can't speak for for each G, each district and and what the nominate what the nominees look like for each district. But I will say that that is something that's difficult with being on a cutter is you just get so busy. You don't take we don't take the time to recognize the high performers, maybe like we would if we had if we had more time, like when we we're ashore. So uh, we'll, we'll look into that. I promise you. Next time, next I, year, I, next year. I don't pull punches. So. Ne- <laughs> I, no, no, no. And next year we will, uh, we will do our, we'll, we'll carefully vet those, and we'll make sure that we get our, our cutters to, to ensure that they're, they're pushing up a really good nomination package for, for their outstanding sailors. No, that's great, Master Chief. And I appreciate you looking at it because the, the, the work that our folks do at sea is some of the most important work we do in the nation. And like I told you, with the, the, the importance that the, that the nation places on the Cutter fleet right now, especially in competition with China and Russia, right. uh, and that competition is it's below, it, it's, it's where we aren't in, in crisis and conflict. It's the everyday, the day-to-day things that we're doing. That's where our Cutter fleet excels, and that's where we're needed the most. And so we, we have never had a time in my career where – the cutter fleet is so important to the nation that it is now. We have new ships coming out. We've got new technology coming out. We've got skill sets that you can best be done at sea. It's a great time to be at sea. And what we need to do with the Sea Duty Readiness Council, what I need to do, uh, and what we're going to work together on is to make it a, a better place to be at sea, to look out for the people so they're looked out after when they're at sea, their families are looked out at, at home, and that when they come off the ship, they get their batteries recharged, they get a break, and then that we work on their professional training and education so the next time they go back to sea, as a, as hopefully as a senior petty officer, as a chief, as a department head, as an XO or CO, they're ready to lead at that next higher level. And we need to constantly keep developing our workforce, and I think that there's a good, you know, go to sea, come ashore, Get re- you know, get rested, get you know, trained, education, and then back to sea again. I think is really what we need to be focusing on. Yeah, well, I can tell you, the Cutterman couldn't have a better advocate in in Cutter Forces than you, Captain Driscoll. Thank you very much, Commander Green. Thank you for all your hard work. Uh, you're you're behind the scenes, but uh, hopefully this podcast kind of puts you front and center uh, for the effort uh, uh, on the Sea Duty Readiness Council and your effort to to improve quality of life and opportunities at sea for everybody. Master Chief, could I just uh, sorry? I wanted to know if I could do like one more like quick um, foot stomp for hey, please, women, if you're listening to this please put in for the 65 WLRs, the YTLs, like these are available to you. The 140s will be coming along soon. And then if the CWD Readiness Council is sending out uh, surveys asking for what you are most concerned about in the fleet, please answer them so that we can get actionable data for your to make your lives change. And then also please to just, uh, if you have ideas outside of that, I'm in global, hit me up. Um, so that we can, um, you know, because we want to hear from people. Cool. I want to thank both of you for your time. It's an honor to have you here today. As a cutterman myself, I'm, I'm thrilled with your advocacy. If you can't tell, Captain Driscoll's passionate about his cutter fleet. So look out for, for more from the Sea Duty Readiness Council. They are constantly pushing up ideas 
and we're gonna we're gonna continue to improve uh, life at sea. So thank you both. Thanks, Mashi. Thanks. Thanks.